Welcome to Calgary Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Wozny, and today's episode is part of a special Q&A series involving students from various Calgary post-secondary institutions and an industry expert from the business community. Out of 20 podcast episodes to date, a total of 53 students have participated, including undergrads in the Bachelor of Commerce, Software Engineering, Computer Science, and Business and Communications faculties, Master students in the Master of Management and Master of Business Administration programs, and Evolve learners from the Inception U Full Stack Developer program here in Calgary. As my two listeners will know, this initiative started during one of my mentoring sessions with Haskane MBA student Jagbir Randawa when we bounced the idea of having him and his MBA colleagues join me on the podcast to share their career expectations for summer roles in 2021 and upon graduation in 2022. It seemed only natural to invite industry experts to allow these students to obtain practical and value-added feedback as they navigate their careers in these COVID-muddied waters. I hope you enjoy this initiative, and to ensure you don't miss future episodes, I invite you to subscribe to the Calgary Business Podcast. I also invite you to leave a review to allow others to easily find my podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and stay safe. Good afternoon. Welcome to Calgary Business Podcast. Uh, I'll be your host today, but I think Jeff and Madison are going to host most of this. Um, But this is episode number 325. And more important, this is one of the this is the 18th of my student sessions, where I bring together in this case, a trio of students from uh, the University of Calgary. And this trio is from the, the computer science department. Sorry, guys, software engineering department, right? So not to be confused. And then uh, I've got Jeff and Jeff Graw and Madison Phillips from Endeavor Technologies. Jeff, I'm gonna let you and Madison go first, introduce the company, and then I'll let the, the, the fellows from the com- software engineering department go next. All right, so go ahead, Jeff. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Alan. I'm Jeff, uh, Jeff Graw. I've been working with Endeavor for the last eight months. Um, I'm a programmer uh, and uh, I have a more of a sort of a unique background probably. I'm more self-taught, but I do have a little bit of formal training and I sort of came in from working on my own indie projects. Yeah, that's cool. Well, we can go there because, you know, I had Brad on, but your, your coworker, boss, whatever, and I've been telling I was... I was fascinated from this. I thought it was going to be an oil and gas discussion and it was all kind of techie. And so Madison, I know you, you know, a lot of that tech stuff. So Madison, please introduce yourself. Hi, Ellen. Uh, Thanks for having us. Uh, My name is Madison or Maddie. I mostly go by Maddie and I'm the director of client relations at Endeavor Technologies. Um, I have kind of a unique role because a lot of what I do is to facilitate the online streaming of our simulations. So I get to work with our sim team, uh, which Jeff is here to talk about uh, all the fun stuff. And then I work with our platform team and I kind of bridge the gap between the two and help make all the magic happen. 
but that, that's a cool position to be in. So, I mean, you literally, you're not a tech person, but you, from my, my understanding, just for the, the two listeners out there, Maddie or Madison, you know, I mean, literally you, you, you really talk the talk in a few seconds. And I, I don't mean that you're trying to fool people. You just understand <laughs> that some of the backstory. So we can, we can dive into that, but let's go now. Uh, Divyansh, let's go first. Uh, let, please introduce yourself and then we'll go, we'll go from there. Um, sure. So I'm Div. Um, I'm a third year combined software engineering and business student at the University of Calgary. Um, I guess a little bit about me is my most recent software development experience was when I was a machine learning undergraduate student researcher, um, and I developed a deep learning model to perform person re-identification, um, which is basically used in security and safety applications. And yeah, I'm looking forward to having this chat today. You might want to put a hat on. Your hair is falling, it's flying all over the place. <laughs> I know it's it's crazy today. <laughs> all right, Maheen, sorry, because last time when, when when the boys I had the two, we were you guys were in the at the somewhere on the tables. Uh, at the faculty somewhere up in Shulik Engineering, is that right? Yeah, we're free. We're having the connections. Maybe we're gonna have to. We're gonna think of this. Anyway, Mahin, go ahead and introduce yourself, please. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I'm Mahin. I'm a third-year software engineering student at the University of Calgary with a science. And a little bit about me as well. Um, my most recent technical experience in the software field was during the summer, where I worked as an undergraduate student researcher at the University of Calgary. And basically, my work kind of involved with um, kind of working with the application of deep learning models to increase the speed of brain MRI segmentations um, over industry standard software. So basically, kind of up the speed of it while also retaining similar levels of accuracy and precision. So yeah, a little bit about myself, and I'm looking forward to talking with you guys all today. Well, it's a muscle. Okay, Kurt. Deep, you guys are into deep learning. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to deep dive into that one a little bit more. But Curtis, please introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, I'm Curtis Silva. I'm a third year software engineering student with a minor in mechatronics engineering. Uh, I've done a few hackathons in the past. Notably, my most recent one, I worked with Div and Mahin. Uh, in this project, we incorporated web development and computer vision software to pose a solution to novel COVID nineteen problems. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited for this talk and just to hear any uh, insights that you guys can provide. Before we go further, I mean, Curtis, that computer vision, there was a venture, venture beat did a series on that. And I, like, it, literally it's a, it's an area, it seems to be a specialty and focus. So computer vision, I guess is what you see. I mean, that's probably Jeff and maybe Madison works with some, making sure what people, the Sims, right? The simulation. So yeah, well, We'll talk with Curtis. You get the, since you went last, you get the privilege of going first on the questions. Thank you. Um, yeah, so to get us started, um, our first question for, for both of you is uh, what made you choose this industry? Uh, specifically, are we talking about training simulation <laughs> or are we talking like computing science? Um, can I hear both? Is that possible? Sure. Uh, Maddie, you want to start with oil and gas uh, yeah, training? Absolutely. So um, I'm actually an econ major originally. Um, I'm very analytical. I, I love math. I've always been very numbers focused, but I've always had this drive to work with people and to shape their experience. Um, and when I got out of university, I first uh, worked in real estate for a little bit. I thought maybe I'd go into accounting. So I tried that for a bit. And then there was a really interesting tech startup 
um, in Calgary, it was called Petrofeed at the time, that analyzed uh, drilling rigs across Canada and more specifically the connections between people, places, and things and how they moved uh, throughout the drilling industry. So that was sort of my first look at, at oil and gas and technology. Uh, I knew nothing about oil and gas other than, you know, I, I, growing up in Calgary. So I actually moved to Brooks, Alberta, and I was a babysitter on a rig site so that I could try and understand <laughs> what was going on. Yeah. Big shift for me. Uh, if anyone has been to Brooks, it is gritty. It is blue collar, um, but I lived a ton in one summer. And I came back to Calgary and I walked into that tech start startup and I pretty much told them they had to give me a job and I would do anything. And I started kind of as an admin and grew with that company. Uh, we grew sort of very quickly and moved into the office space that I'm in currently, which is uh, where I met the Endeavor team. Um, they were also doing some similar oil and gas, uh, a little bit of startup. Um, but bridging that gap between oil and gas and technology um, and the fit was just really great. And when the company I was at Souls, uh, I was so passionate about joining this team and it just seemed really natural. I think that that like technology, uh, software engineering, oil and gas um, mix is pretty rare. So I, I think I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm, yeah. We're going to unpack that Brooks uh, link a little later, but uh, Jeff, please. <laughs> okay, so mine is going to be more of the comp sci rather than the training simulation. But sort, of, I've sort of always been interested in computers. Um, when I was, I think, around six or seven years old, I had my own 386 uh, desktop, uh, which was great. So lots of playing games, wanting to write games, trying to write a few things in basic. Um, 386 is you're talking 386. Like, wow, oh, I'm dating <laughs> can, myself. A can little you put bit that here. into perspective? No, for the for how old are the, you? No, no, not the age. I mean, let's, let's but the processing power, right? I, I probably you probably have more in your phone, Inf infinitesimally small okay. <laughs> compared to what you have today. You, you anything that does processing nowadays has more power than a 386 does, <laughs> not just your phone, <laughs> like your phone is a. Uh, your phone is a mainframe supercomputer uh, compared to that Wasn't 386. Wasn't it called Cray? It's a mainframe supercomputer compared to the mainframe supercomputers back in the day, really. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, so when I went out of high school, um, I went into computing science and I took two years of that. Uh, at the same time, um, I joined a band that I thought was going to really take off. So I dropped out to become a rock star and uh, I'm a drummer. I play drums and I taught drums for a few years. Um, obviously the rock star thing worked as well as it usually does <laughs> just to say it didn't. <laughs> Brian, Brian Adams just released the 28th anniversary of some song. And I'm like, Whoa. Yeah, it works for a very small amount of people. It's it's very selective, right? Uh, and success begets success. Um, so that's the entire sort of thing. The successful people keep on having more success. And then you have everybody else who isn't successful that just gets the scraps. Uh, after that, uh, I started working as a 911 
uh, operator and dispatcher. Uh, and I uh, dispatched ambulances for uh, Northern Alberta and then for Central Alberta. Um, that said, I'm kind of more of a analytical thinky guy. And a lot of the work that you would do there would be very rote. Obviously, everybody is concerned about liability. So you have very specific procedures that you need to follow and you need to follow them pretty specifically. Uh, not very much room for creativity. And, uh, you know, uh, I've, I've had a few uh, sort of uh, dreams throughout the years, being an astronaut, being a rock star, being a lawyer and, and making uh, computer games. So I decided, you know, of the ones that are sort of realistic, that's the one that I could do. I saved up a big, big nest egg and I just decided, okay, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit this job at uh, dispatching and I'm going to start making computer games because I don't want to be a dispatcher forever. And if I don't do this uh, now, maybe it'll be too late eventually. So Jeff, the, the game, and for the benefit of the, for anybody who's listening to that game you is it uh, what did you write it in do you know the code is it i mean can you share that yeah it's it's written in c sharp and okay. it's implemented in the unity game engine and the name again is dominus galaxia that's dominus <laughs> galaxia well, that's how familiar. much brad will feel about me plugging it but but uh, unity <laughs> okay so unity technologies is that the power does it power the same because we, we talked about the endeavor and i think i made the reference yes. to yeah. the gaming that uh, the Come on, the um, gosh, the um, Fortnite game, the graphics. That's Unreal. Unreal yeah. Engine. Yeah. But you, it's similar to the Unity technology, similar to Unreal Engine. It's similar. There's some significant differences, though. Like Unreal is focused on a lot of pushing out frame rates, um, and it's very high fidelity. Whereas Unity, it's um, it's probably easier to get into at first, but it's also in a lot of ways very flexible in terms of coding. And C Sharp is a great language for writing things like uh, a 4X-based strategy game, which has, yeah, just so much uh, so much goes into those games or like a drilling simulator. Yeah. Uh, not having to worry about pointers and just being able to work on a high level. Link is great. Um, and it's just a great language for that stuff. Obviously, you'll never have as much performance as a lower level language, assuming that you are actually good at coding in the low level language. If you're bad at coding in the low level language, maybe you have a bit more performance. Okay. Um, in any case, uh, so yeah, drop, uh, quit that job, just sort of <laughs> burn my bridges behind me, said, I want to start making games. Uh, sort of started on a few different concepts until I, uh, uh, settled on a 4X-based strategy game, which is a terrible game to try and make as your first game. Uh, because again, they're so complex, I should have tried to make some sort of mobile puzzle uh, platformer thing. That would be much easier. Uh, lots of, there's a, there's a few sort of games in that space where everybody's trying to remake them. Uh, and everybody is pretty much failing at it because they're difficult games to make and a lot of people that do that aren't the professional uh so getting to that point with dumbness galaxy it was a struggle i'm sort of and this is kind of philosophical right and i and don't think of this politically 
because it's totally different than politics. You can be a liberal or you can be conservative politically, it doesn't matter. But I see programmers who have different philosophies and it's more complex than this, but just to sort of at the risk of oversimplifying it, I would say that you have liberal programmers and you have conservatives are more concerned about, um, uh, you know, the inner workings, doing it, doing it right, making everything nice and elegant and neat. And, oh, this code is so beautiful. And the conservatives are more concerned about, well, yeah, but how can we sell it? Uh, let's, let's, let's get from point A to point B. Let's get this feature here. Let's make it run, right? So very, uh, I'd say, ends-oriented versus means-oriented. But I guess you need them both, right? You, you need definitely. Both in, in, so, yeah. yeah. So myself, I'm not necessarily politically. I'm more of a moderate. But in terms of development, I am massively liberal to a fault. Um, and I know people who are the other way around or people that are like me. And it, it, uh, it helps and it hurts. Um, and like with Dominus Galaxia, I never was able to monetize it much besides the Kickstarter. Um, and if I was more conservative, I probably would have finished it off. It wouldn't have been as elegant. Uh, the systems would Maybe you were looking for perfection. I'm always, so yeah, I'm always looking for perfection. Yeah. And I also have this weird psychological aspect of me uh, and this is the case for my drumming as well, or anything that I value as a part of my identity. If anybody is within like my physical sphere of influence and they are obviously a better at me at that aspect, at, at that thing, I want, I'll work my, I'll work my butt off until I at least get to the point where I can, uh, you know, compare favorably with them. If not, uh, if not surpass them. So that's my, I can't, pathologically, I cannot stand being second best at something that is part of my identity. Like with drumming, Buddy Rich exists, Nate Smith exists, doesn't matter so much. They're outside of my physical sphere of influence. But if all of a sudden one of those guys were my roommate and playing drums across <laughs> the hall, I would be practicing 20 hours a day <laughs> to get to that level, right? Jeff did mention this in his interview. Um, I actually do kind of our first wave of interviews with our developer developers as well. So I do like the first pass, the first scan, and he he truly has stuck to that. So I I think we're all really impressed. Oh, thank you, Maddie. Right. Um, oh, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, was, this was going to go somewhere. We're, oh yeah. So for Dominus Galaxia, basically, if you try and make a forex based strategy game and you don't know that and you aren't very good. Um, it's going to be, it's going to work for a while and then will eventually collapse under its own weight because there are just so many different systems that are all sort of working together. Uh, so I ended up sort of rewriting everything at least three times <laughs> as, a, as I progressed as a programmer. Um, the other thing that I'd like to say that the liberals have an advantage over the conservatives with is there's this... Um, there's this tension between writing code fast and writing code well. The What I found is true, and people that are more experienced than me that I really look up to seem to agree with this, is that if you don't write code, if you just write this, if you aren't concerned at all about writing code, you won't 
what good code you won't progress very fast if you're very concerned about writing good code your work might be slower but it it also pays dividends so a lot of the stuff that makes good code uh it becomes more rote and then say you're going into a game jam or like uh or hackathon uh and all those sort of good, so say, like I want to do like a model view controller thing instead of just having everything just, you know, randomly all over the place with, with no, with utter disregard to how things interact together, just as long as it works. Um, eventually, it becomes very quick to be able to implement that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, method of doing things. Uh, versus, you know, the first, the more that you do it, the better you get at it. And then you figure out other stuff and then you get faster at that. Uh, and for me, at least in terms, not necessarily in terms of shipping a finished title, but in terms of personal development, I think the liberals have a huge advantage. Well, let's, let's move on. Thanks, Jeff. Let, let's get Mahin the chance to have a question and and uh, I went on way too long there. I no, that's right. We can we, we can work on the drumming aspects later, and, and we can tune yeah. your, drums, your 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 drumsticks. Perfect. Tune the drumsticks. That's how it works. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. I can take the next question. Um, so yeah. this is for both of you guys as well. Um, so in your respective roles, either previous or currently, right now, um, what would you say are the most notable and like most meaningful projects that you guys have worked on in your career? Um, so yeah, whoever wants to answer, that'd be great. Should I start again? Yeah. Sure. So for me, <clears throat> working in oil and gas, working in technology, um, what we're doing in Endeavor is far beyond anything that I've worked on. Um, our simulations are real time and they rely on our computational model to analyze thousands of data points. So we can produce sort of an unlimited amount of scenarios. So we really can provide people the opportunity to learn from experience without any risk of accident or injury. And so for me, that's, I mean, that's something you never get to do. And then taking innovative technology, um, we really do create a multi-sensory learning experience. So for me, taking all the magic that Jeff does and then working with our platform team, putting it out in the world and then getting feedback on it uh, is pretty exceptional. I want, Madison, I do want to give you a chance. So I don't know if you know like the from, on it. Like how deep? Oh, sorry, sorry? Jeff. I was, going yeah. to give, I was going to go to Madison's Brook, uh, Brooks time. Yeah, I've talked so much. Feel free to. <laughs> no, I, I just want to give it because you remind. So on it, uh, I don't know if you know on it Corporation. She's Randine. She, she, Oh, you cut out there, just a little, Alan. Yeah, this is where I just, guys, maybe we can go off video and just keep sure. the audio because it's, I'm really getting a lot of glitchy on my side. No okay. Worries. Let's do that. And then we can, I think it'll improve the, the connection. All right. I'll come back to that, Madison. But Jeff, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, sure. Uh, Mahin, like uh, how sort of, are you looking for something more big picture or small picture? Because if it's big picture, it's a, probably a pretty boring answer. I'll just say making Dominus Galaxia. No, um, completely up to you. Uh, I'm fine with the other answer. And honestly, I don't think anything's boring. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, with 
I mean, yeah, big picture would be Dominus Galaxy. If you're just talking about my time with Endeavor, it's hard because I've, I've, I've been here eight months, but I've worked on a lot of different things already. Like um, I worked on moving us from the um, legacy rendering pipeline to the newer universal rendering pipeline in Unity. That was pretty big. Um, and also like some of the stuff that I think had a pretty big impact, not didn't necessarily require that much development effort. Like uh, after coming in, I was able to just sort of profile things, look around and find some uh, low hanging fruit that improved the frame rate by quite a bit um, just on the CPU side. A lot of that might be because uh, before we might've been more GPU limited before moving to URP though. So I don't wanna take too much credit for that. Um, And the, probably in terms of just like uh, cool sort of systems um, with Endeavor, the thing that I'd probably be mo most proud of is um, we're working on an immersive version of the simulator. So the usual, so the tempo, the normal simulator, it's just sort of like you have a viewport that's looking at, um, at, at the main thing and you have a few CCTVs are you just in the corner uh, by CCTV, I mean just like another camera that's looking at something else that you can cycle between different viewpoints. And then you just have a big interface, lots of a, a menu with buttons that you click on and they come up with UIs. Uh, so the big um, breakthrough on immersive was just being able to take all those UIs and figure out a way to get them to work uh, in world space, basically. And with the Unity game engine, they have three types of UIs, one that's an overlay, one that renders on top of a camera, and one that renders in world space. Uh, the issue with the world space UI is that um, uh, the, it's not rendered very, uh, very well. It's more for like, uh, press, you know, press F to interact with this thing. It's not not really, it doesn't really work very well when you have a giant UI that's designed for like a 1080p screen that has a lot of small things. You get a lot of aliasing and, um, and a lot of noise and it doesn't necessarily work too well. Um, and that was something that uh, the team had been struggling with uh, for a while on and off. And I came up with a system where basically uh, instead of render in camera space, I would take and I'd have basically one camera per UI that's showing. Um, so, so each of these UIs would basically be like on a, a virtual monitor inside the screen. So instead of just overlaid on the, uh, on your screen, like it usually would be, it'd be on a virtual screen in the sim. So basically, uh, uh, took that, made it so that instead of each of these different UIs is rendering onto a camera, that camera is rendering onto a texture, that texture is being applied, or that render texture is being applied to a material that's applied to a texture in the scene, and then a little bit tricky to get the events from the mouse from that texture uh, to that camera, to that UI. 
Um, and then there's a bunch of like none of the UIs before had been sort of designed to be run um, like more than one of them or it, it was sort of like a very specific so I also had to come up with the way like navigate uh, navigate uh, the different UIs and being able to split off certain UIs to certain monitors and everything like that. Uh, so that was a very fun task for me. That was probably my most fun task at Endeavor so far. Jeff, yeah, I mean, for sure. Sorry, I mean, Madison, maybe you can, because this Does really it, sounds yeah, like- that answer my question. And yeah, that sounded great. Yes. Uh, well, we're really having a lot of- Sorry, I'll let you know. No, no, I, I don't know if this, the connection's really well or not, because it seems to be glitchy because Madison, I was just going to say that sounds complicated. How do the clients, the, the interface with the clients there, do they have to have the same kind of monitors, big monitors to, to handle the graphics? Sorry, uh, you cut out just a little uh, there. This is just really not working well, guys. Um, so I'm just thinking of the graphics that Jeff explained. It seems the UI, how does that come across for the clients when you're working with your clients and do they have right. to have it? Yeah this hardware for that so yeah so that's that's definitely one of our our major challenges user base uh you're going to have a lot of variance in network connectivity as well as end user devices so we get some people who might access our content from say a high performance gaming computer while others rely on something as you know tiny as a smartphone so Obviously, there this creates problems when we're trying to create a reliable experience. Right. Uh, to share immersive 3D content, the experience needs to be engaging, it needs to be intuitive, and it needs to be seamless. Um, and I guess I can just touch on our sort of streaming a little bit. Um, small scale streaming is more about capturing video data, encoding and transmitting, and then decoding it as quickly as possible. So what we do with cloud streaming is we build on those core functions, um, but more importantly, it's about managing GPU-enabled cloud infrastructure on that global level. So we need to be able to distribute interactive 3D models to different geographical regions, load balancing global traffic, and also schedule users in, a, in an efficient way. Right. So you know the way that Jeff describes this, it sounds like this map massive project and it is, but then you need to be able to take that to someone who lives in a more remote area and with unstable network connections and they have to have just as good an experience. Yeah. So we do, we spend a lot of time with our clients. We really strive for excellent support and we do have an excellent technical support team um, because you can create something as massive and engaging as, as Jeff just explained. And you know, we do have a, 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 an immersive sim demo and it's remarkable. It is, it's, it's like a, a video game. It really is. You feel like you're, you're in the doghouse. You feel like you're on the rig, uh, but we need everyone to be able to experience that in the same way. So, you know, for me to see, you know, we give these demos and people are always blown away, um, but it, it's all the little details in the background that make it really possible. Okay. Let's come back. Cause I want to come back to that, but on the terms of the VR kind of side, but the versus a, a sim, simulation on the computer, but maybe that in the VR headsets or whatever. But Divyansh, let's go to you. Let's see if you've got a question for the team. 
Uh, yeah, so one of the questions, so as you know, we're all students right now um, in our third year. And so kind of we want to, and we're all around like 18, 19, 20, some of us. Um, so we wanted to ask, like, if you could turn back time and talk to, you know, your 18-year-old self or your 19-year-old self, what would you tell um, yourself? What advice would you give yourself uh, for later on? Um, and again, this is to either one of you. Okay, that's a good question. Um, I would say, you know, what? Um, you know, it was crazy. Move to Brooks, be a babysitter. Uh, you know, you don't really think that's going to, you know, jumpstart your career. Um, use the skills that you have uh, from school, but then recognize that they can be applied to a lot of things. Um, you know, I really thought that I would go the math route, and I found that the analytical skill sets that I had um, sort of built up over my university career were applicable in so many different fields. Um, you know, you guys sound like you're super well-rounded. I know one of you is doing business and software engineering. Um, I, I believe somebody came up at, at mechatronics. Um, like what you're doing already is so fantastic and it actually just blows my mind. Um, it's so good to be diverse. Um, that we get and I, I mentioned to Jeff today actually we get about 20 resumes a day I would say uh, for job postings that are you know no longer even active and you know Jeff really stood out because he was incredibly passionate um, you know he had quit what he was doing to jump into video game development and after him and I talked the first time I, I felt like you know there's definitely something there. His passion is there. He's eager. He's hardworking. And that was a really good fit with what we were doing. So I think going back to your question, um, I would just say, you know, diversify your interests, which you all seem to have done. Totally trust your gut and go with what you believe in. And even if it seems a little strange, if you if you believe it, I, I truly believe it will help with your career progression. Okay. Yeah, that, that actually helps a lot because, you know, as students, we're often you know, doubting ourselves or um, worried about how a decision that we make now might be the wrong decision and we realize later on. So kind of hearing from someone like a professional like you, um, you know, telling us to try. Absolutely. And, you know, I actually started in poli-sci. I switched to math. I switched to econ. Um, I actually, I, I wrote my LSAT. I was going to go to law school. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. life happens. <laughs> I, uh, so I think, and that's kind of the interesting part. You get to um, your uh, a stage in a career where you, you talk to people, and the path that they took to get where they are is, you know, pretty remarkable sometimes. For sure. Thank you. Yeah, for me, it would be uh, three words: invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jeff, we didn't. We said we weren't going to go to cryptocurrency. This is <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Alan, you cut out again. No, I just said we we did we we agreed we weren't going to go to cryptocurrency, but that was my last. Oh, podcast. that was my last <laughs> podcast, Jeff. I'm just crossing into the, the the ether. Oh, there we go, ether. But yeah, I like that. Thank yeah. you, Jeff. <laughs> but Jeff, I mean, 
hard to say like i'm gonna slightly reinterpret this and say like if you could do it all again as opposed to giving yourself advice and if i could do it all like for myself uh like uh here two things about myself one is that there's so many things that i want to do that i feel like one lifetime isn't enough and that i hate the fact that we only have this many years to do what we want to do and i'm really hopeful that something or not necessarily hopeful but i'd love it if some sort of life extension came thing came down the pipe in 20 or 30 years that gave me the time to do it uh, the my issue is that uh, i can i'm sort of the personality where i can only really focus on one thing at a time uh, or to put it another way, I can only procrastinate one thing at a time. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm, so I've always been a pretty terrible procrastinator. Uh, so, but I, at the same time, I've always been the sort of person who can sort of get things done when I need to. But it sort of ends up being procrastinate, procrastinate. Okay, now I only have the time for this one thing. So I don't really. I've tried to do two things at once, and just sort of the less important thing tends to fall by the wayside. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, me, I need to go into things fully or not at all, really. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. Maheen, let's get you back in. Um, yeah, for sure. Oh, sorry, I, Cur it was Curtis, but my, sorry, Maheen, you go in and Curtis come go next. Sorry, Curtis, I missed you on that one. Uh yeah, no worries. Um, Madison Jeff, I really uh, appreciated you guys' responses. It was really insightful. Uh I'm just gonna ask another question that's gonna touch a bit on the previous one and that's uh what tips would you have for us when applying mm -hmm. to companies or just improving our skills and abilities okay well you know like i mentioned um yeah i'm actually the first touch point for um the resumes that we get uh i'm the first person to scan through them and then if i believe that it's worth a technical review then our director of drilling technology will go over the resume and set up a call with our our, with our dev team. Um, so I, I do have some pieces of advice. Um, one, I know this is going to sound so simple, but please spell check your resumes. I cannot tell you how many I get with something spelled wrong. It's you, you think that that would, but it isn't. Um, to a personal touch. So we get a lot of resumes with a little like intro paragraph, and it does seem like it's a copy paste apply all situation. When we get a resume and it's addressed, they write an email. It doesn't have to be a formal cover letter, but an email, even addressed to Brad, um, because that means they looked the company up on LinkedIn or something. They saw who the CEO was. It doesn't really matter that he's not the one going through resumes. It means that that person took a little bit of extra time to figure out who worked at the company. Um, for larger companies, you can really easily look up who the hiring manager or the uh, hiring team is. Um, and then in that intro email, um, I, I like when someone first starts out by saying, like, I noticed that you guys are doing this or, you know, we got an email yesterday that said, um, I watched your video on MPD simulation on LinkedIn. I was really interested by how, uh, how you stream 3D graphics. Some of my experience has 
school wanted to our team because one, they took the time to look at what we were doing and they made it relevant to their own experience. So that for me is super key. And then in terms of your skills and what you were doing, I, I truly feel like you're all in such a great place. Um, you've diversified, you're doing, you know, AI, AR, VR, like the, these, I know they're kind of like buzzwords, but they, they do really get picked up on. Um, and I think Jeff, you can from, from a, so that's kind of how we, we take note and do sort of a first pass. And then for example, I would send those resumes to our, to our dev team. And then maybe Jeff, you can kind of provide some insight on what you guys would look for, to, for someone to fit with the team. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, this is, this is an interesting question for me because Endeavor was Jeff, are you there? I think we've you probably want to, well, like I'd say kind of like approach it and politically, like if you, it sounds like you guys are pretty young, you said 18 or 19 for third year. And if that's the case, you guys are probably already way ahead of the curve. And uh, it sounds like you guys are doing so. The question then I guess would be, does everybody else who's applying, do they, for the jobs that you want, uh, are they going to, how, how do you compare relative? If you're applying for jobs uh, and you aren't sort of getting to the point where you're getting a job offer, look at where the failure point is. Are you not, are you getting to the personal interview stage? Or are you getting to the technical interview stage? Um, so if you're, if you have a great resume, you'll get to the personal interview stage. If you, if you're a good person, you'll get to the technical interview stage. And if you don't pass the technical interview stage, you, pr you probably don't need to worry about those other things as much as just studying up your coding interviews and uh, that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, I, guess, I, th I think, sorry. Just one more thing that I just thought of. Uh, we love uh, like a GitHub link. We love code samples. We love like uh, Jeff, of course, he sent us his game and, you know. And a few code samples, yeah. And a few code samples, yeah, that really, like we, we kind of can streamline things very quickly when we can say, okay, this person is definitely interesting. They're passionate. Um, and then a personal interview, yeah, they, they would fit well with the team and their code sample has been approved. They definitely have the caliber of coding that we're looking for. So then it really becomes more of a, a technical challenge interview where, um, you know, and, and I kind of love this stage of the interview. It's where our, um, like one of our SIM architects will give you a real world problem. And I've almost seen them. Um, sometimes they're not solvable and it's not about finding the solution or getting the right answer. It's we want to see how your brain works and how you break things down and how you come, you know, what steps you follow. Um, so practicing code challenges and stuff, I think would be a really great idea too. Uh, yeah, I guess one thing that I've it's like um, standing out from the crowd is probably good as long as you're standing out in a good way. Um, mm -hmm. But just sort of think 
in terms of, um, I mean, probably, and Maddie, you're free to correct me uh, if, if you disagree here, but uh, I think that um, you're looking for certain components, uh, like, uh, and mostly those would be like education slash credentials on one hand, uh, uh, samples and projects and previous work experience. And probably the most uh, valuable in the industry there would be previous work experience. If you've been you know, working with a, a reputable company uh, for a number of years, then they're like, okay, yep, this, they've already sort of done a lot of the due diligence there. Uh, and then based on credentials or personal projects, uh, probably based, I wouldn't necessarily say one's more important than the other, but uh, a lot of it would be based on the strengths of each. Like um, uh, a poor personal project is certainly not going to get you as far as a credential, but a really, really impressive uh, personal project might. But generally, you probably need to get a very impressive uh, portfolio if you're uncredentialed and want to get your first bite in the industry there. And, and ideally you have all three, right? Mm -hmm. Like after you have the work experience, it sort of trumps the other stuff, but it also doesn't completely subsume it. You yeah. still want, it's still better to have the other stuff than not have it. It doesn't become obsolete. Mm -hmm. Jeff, or maybe Mad Madison, can, can you guys yeah, hear me? That's right, especially like, uh... yeah. My, this connection is really bad for me, guys. Sorry, but I'll let you guys speak. Madison and, and Jeff, how do you bridge that between the portfolio, like the project? Where do they, you know, GitHub is one, it's a repository, but uh, resumes I, another. Bridge what? <laughs> Sorry, could you rephrase? <laughs> this is just really bad. I was just thinking there's a gap between your resume and the project portfolio and the GitHub repository Where do you, and, and work experience. Where do they put this? Where do you recommend they can put that data if it's not into GitHub or on the resume, the portfolio, as you mentioned, Jeff? Um, so a lot of people apply, they built themselves uh, like a website, which becomes kind of their portfolio. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, that's always a good way. Uh, it all, you know, we can see that you, well, especially for our platform developers who were, we were hiring to build our website and our platform um, it's great to see kind of what they've built for themselves. You can see their creativity. You can see the way that they sort of arrange information. Um, and then they often have like links to projects on there. Um, but, you know, even just an email with a few links, if you have them online anywhere, or even if you're willing to do like a zip file uh, of code, as long as it's, of course, like a public project and it wasn't for another company. Um, but we're pretty flexible. Uh, it's more about, you know, we, we're looking for, and Jeff, I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but yep. we're scalable code. We look for, you know, clean, uh, well-documented. Um, you know, those are, those are mm -hmm. a few little things. We, we um, want code that looks better than our production code. <laughs> yeah, better than us. <laughs> well, I mean, all production code tends to be non-ideal eventually because you get changing requirements and deadlines and lots of different people that are 
touching it at different stages in development and yeah. And that's helpful. So I just wanted to, I wanted to, it isn't really a um, Obviously I forgot. Oh, yeah. No, I was just saying it's not really a bridge, but you just helped that that clarified that in terms of how you, you know, how the someone like Curtis or Div or Maheen can bridge that gap between the resume. Yeah. And we forgot. Yeah. Yeah. We forgot one thing that is theoretically more important than anything else when it comes to landing a job, which is being friends and being respected by employers that are already there, like uh, Maddie. If, if, uh, if you have somebody that's at the company and you're like, man, this guy's a great performer. And then they come and tell you and say, by the way, I know this awesome person they're looking for, they're looking for a job. Uh, that guy immediately goes to the top of the pile, at least in most places. I know we have some employees that, uh, were hired in a fashion. Because it's very hard to judge the quality, like it's very hard for non-programmers to judge the quality of code. Um, and there's a whole bunch of issues that you can have with employees, even if they have quality. And if you have a good employee who's a good, good, who's a good programmer and he can vouch for somebody, that basically clears almost all of the red flags almost immediately. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, don't, don't burn bridges. Network. References. Yep. Networking events are great. Coding challenges. Yep. Those are all great ideas. Let's, let's let uh, Mahin, can you hear me? Let's let Mahin have a chance to uh, throw another question. Yeah, for sure. To um, both Madison and Jeff. Um, so kind of like we're as students, we wonder a lot, like when is it more important to like kind of balance quality when delivering a project with speed? Like this kind of touches on what Jeff mentioned earlier in the on the podcast, where um, the kind of philosophy of a of a liberal programmer versus a conservative programmer. So in which situations um, is it speed over quality and, uh, and vice versa as well, like when delivering a project? Oh. I'll take a crack at that. And I'm almost going to say that there's probably some times where it's bloody obvious, like you need to deliver now or else you lose the contract you, you need to deliver. But most of the times I think that's sort of an intangible, or let's just say there's so many different intangible elements that if you could figure that out, you'd be, and get people to believe that you had had it figured out, you'd basically be worth millions and millions and millions of dollars because they're for every sort of like uh you can point to like the development of half-life was famously sort of like we aren't going to ship it until it's perfect and that netscape sort of did this famous sort of okay we need to refactor and make everything perfect and it destroyed the company like you you have examples on both sides of that um yeah. Uh, I'd probably say just, you know, uh, just sort of thinking about it, I'd probably say that it's safer to be the guy who, to be in the position where, okay, I want to get gotcha. the deliverables. Yeah. 
but it's potentially more lucrative. It's more risky, but the potentially greater reward to be like, yeah, I want to deliver the best thing possible. Like, like uh, if again, like going back to a game like uh, Half-Life, maybe nine times out of 10, you take the, okay, we need to make it better. We're going to delay it a year. We're going to fix everything up and make it great. Maybe nine times out of 10, it fails terribly. And one times and one time out of 10, you get Half-Life and you get Valve and the sky's the limit. But um, probably clo closer to 100% of the time, if you sort of ship it when it's good enough, you at least you know you get something. It's a hard <laughs> it's a question. great question. You guys are really great questions. Um, I guess from more of a business perspective, is I, I guess two things. Um, one, it's really important to build a team that has both. So you know we have team members that you know the first thing that they are thinking about is uh, the business out as quickly as possible and I, I'm probably the worst I work with our platform team and I'm always like I need this feature tomorrow and I want it done you know five minutes ago and it needs to be mm. perfect on top of that um, but I of course I try not to and be realistic and you know um, then we also have developers who you know some of our architects who work on these um, very complex models um, which is how we how we do our downhole modeling. Um, you know, there's a lot more time and precision that goes into that. Um, for me, when we approach a, prod, a project or a product, um, we really focus on MVP, which is minimum viable product. Yes, I said that correctly. Minimum yes, you did. <laughs> so, Not model. Yeah, <laughs> that's a hockey term called Mac, the you know the, the most, most valuable, valuable player. player right? I know so. I almost said that. <laughs> um, so we want you know we want to show our clients the potential of what we can do quickly as possible while still demonstrating the extent of our abilities. So we want something that, of course, but we want to do. We want to show them as much value as we can, as quickly and with as little resources as possible. Right. And then once we have that MVP, we kind of build on that and grow yeah. from there. I'm going to take another crack at this, actually. Because <laughs> I'm just thinking in real time about it. Uh, and it's such a great question because like, uh, you can look at it from an individual perspective or or as a team perspective. And the question that I just thought of, uh, which I think I have the answer to, is, you know, I'll, it's going to depend situationally which which way you want to go. And not just which way, it's not a binary question. It's where along that spectrum you want to, is the ideal place to be. Um, and just thinking about that, I'm thinking like if you have members of the team, again, this is not political, orthogonal to the politics of you know liberals and conservatives in that way the right and the left but the if you have a team that you have both the left uh, not left <laughs> the li more liberal developers that want to make it perfect the more conservative developers who want to ship it uh and let's say that in that team you're able to sort of debate respectfully and not 
sort of form different uh, fiefdoms or hate each other about it. If you could have sort of advocates for both and then the better side sort of uh, wins the day or let's say sort of drags where along that gradient you want to elf. I think that's probably preferable to just having a whole bunch of moderates. Right. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like being a trial in a court uh, in a courtroom. You just saying, well, this, but maybe that. No, you want to have adversarial positions. Yeah. Um, probably, I'd guess, like the higher up the hierarchy you are, and the more sort of you're not sort of in the trenches, you probably would want to be more conservative and more ends oriented and goal oriented. But as an individual, I'd say uh, I'm biased, obviously, because I'm. I'd classify myself as an extremely liberal developer, but I'd say as an individual, it's probably good to be liberal because then you're more sort of learning the newer things, trying things out, uh, trying to make things better, and you're improving your own. You're improving your own skill while you do that. That so yeah. And then I guess. Um, I mean, the worst thing, though, sorry, worst thing would be if you have extreme conservatives and liberals and they're just going to constantly at each other's throat. That would be bad. And just for me, taking it back to you guys working on projects, whether they're your personal projects or school projects, I think being able to demonstrate an MVP that meets all of the objectives, even if the code is perhaps not as clean, but then being able to demonstrate that you took that and you built on it and you, you know, went back and cleaned things up and documented um, you know, what you were doing. Uh, for me, that would, that would show a lot of progression and growth. How would that. one go about showing that, Maddie? Well, um, so for some projects that we have had uh, people send, we've, they've actually uh, sent like, snippets from when they started to sort of when they finished their project. Um, a lot of school projects as well, you kind of have to show a progression and kind of where you started and or if you're building a website, if you're building, um, I, it's a little bit different with games, um, but really that's kind of where it comes out in the technical interview um, before a code challenge, because we do really ask like, okay, we're looking at your project, like how'd you, where'd you start, you know? You know what what language were you using what did you learn as you went through this um yeah so, so more you know that does come through in the interview but, uh, let me just uh, you know to the mv because your mvp can you guys can hear me yeah. you know the the y combinator takes the approach of get it out as soon as possible get people testing using it so liberal or you know if you're too conservative you'll never issue it and the, you know, there was a Michael Siebel from Y Combinator put out a 12 minute video about the importance of the MVP. And he gave one, a couple examples, but one that stuck out is it used to be called Justin TV. And I don't know, Jeff, maybe you remember that. Yeah. A the guy used to go around, he used to go around with a monkey cam and, you know, and, and basically a camera on his head. And then it became Twitch. So the precursor to Twitch, but the, the early stages. Mm -hmm. of, would that be more in the context of you're sort of starting something new and you're looking for investors? Well, why why can it work? Why can it work inside your what you're doing? Like what Maddie Madison was saying, Maddie's saying, like I think it does. We really do we use the MVP mentality almost every day. Um, when we get new projects or new clients, they have you know an idea. We we break it down, we build a scope of work, and then we get a list of objectives that need to be met. 
and we build something that meets those objectives, maybe is a little bit rough around the edges as quickly as possible. And then from there, we do you know, multiple iterations. Um, we can grow the project, uh, but we do. We, I, I firmly believe from a business perspective that MVPs are the way to go. Um, you know, I'm working on a project uh, right now um, that, I'm, that I'm really excited about. We're building up these, uh, we call them cutscenes in trees. So we're using simulation and we're using our platform to develop these uh, training scenarios where you, know, you go through an exercise or a simulation and then it cuts or it stops. And then you're asked, okay, well, what do you wanna do now? Is this pin in correctly? Is this lined up correctly? And you have to select yes or no. And then based on your decision, you move through the next piece of the simulation. This new project that's coming up and, you know, we're taking these small demo versions of this, you know, we call them cutscenes, and building it out in a way that shows the, the potential of what you can do with this type of training. But we're going to push that out in a couple of weeks rather than all of the simulations and, you know, going through all the workflows completely. Because uh, we just want to be able to show the client that you know, this is what it will look like. This is how it will function. This is how we will meet your objectives. And the quicker we're able to do that, the better. Yeah, for sure. Answer to that. And that also follows really closely with what our professors say at school. And I think Dave and Curtis can agree with me, which is to, you know, always follow proper software design principles, you know, make sure you write good, clean code. But this same time also understand that hey you have these deliverables complete and make sure you get them done on time as well so for sure those are really great answers thank you yeah Let, let's go let's go div let's let's find another question at and we can if we, we want to revisit that because it's a i think the mvp is important area and getting demos out very important so but div go ahead if you had a question um yeah so this was kind of like a curiosity question more uh, more so than anything and it's specifically for i guess madison um so in which you've kind of had to say no to a customer request or like a client request or, um, you know, deny them of something that they're asking for. And if so, how did you kind of preserve that relationship after you um, declined it? Like, how do you maintain that healthy relationship and continue to um, be on good terms? Absolutely. Great question. Um, so, yeah, my simple answer would be, of course, right? Of course, we can't do everything. So. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you how do you say no to a customer um, without you know burning that bridge? And so the first step is obviously just customer experience is so important. Customer support is so important, and we we often get told by our clients and customers that we have excellent support. And I'm always so proud when I hear that one of our technical support team members have gone above and beyond to help someone nurturing that relationship from day one and making sure that people feel that they're heard and that their ideas are important. So what I like to do is I really do checkpoints with our clients and I, I try to gather as much feedback as possible. And I think this probably comes from my analytical side. I document everything. So anytime someone says, oh, I really love this, or I wish this, or, you know, I, I want 
accomplish this, I document it. And I can tell you, you know, sometimes we get really great ideas. And sometimes people are like, you know, we built a website uh, for a client recently and a, a couple of customers told us, you know, I don't like this site because it's red and that seems angry and I don't like being in here. And yeah, you know, that that's good to hear, but it's definitely not something that we yeah. can change. So what I like to do is we build up this spreadsheet of feedback. Now we track who that client is, you know, how long we've had that relationship. And I always keep some notes in there so that other team members can, can visit and read about it. You know, where is that relationship going? You know, what commitments have we made to them? What commitments have they made to us? And then we put in their feedback. So then I go through this feedback and I go, okay, 10 different clients, you know, one that we, one that we had very recently was we, we have a time scale on the same, you know, everyone in wanted, I believe it was times 10 instead of times five and times 20. So it's a small thing, but it actually takes quite a bit of development to add that times 10 button onto all of our simulations. So we put it in the, in the spreadsheet, we collected the information and then by, you know, client five, client six, we're hearing it again and again. It's like, okay, this is an important feature for a lot of people that we work with. So at that point, you know, we work on it and we reach out to all of them and say, you know, we, we've heard you, we've listened. This is our timeline. This is when you can expect it. And we'll let you know when it's complete. And we did. For the feedback that we get that we decide not to do, you know, it's more about saying, you know, that that's great. That's a great suggestion. Um, you know, another thing we like to do is we, we send out a client request form because for me, I want to know how it's going to impact their business. So if they come back and say, well, for our business, we need this feature because, and it, it will really impact them that then I take that very seriously. And I take that back to the dev team almost immediately. Yep. You know, sometimes we get feedback, you know, on this screen, because I'd rather like, it, it just seems slow. Is that impacting your business? Potentially not. Maybe it doesn't get pushed through. Um, that one, of course, you know, we did, we did because we, we got a lot of feedback. Um, we, so I guess that would be clients that we already have, projects that we're already working on, you know, building new features for the sim, um, just being super polite and honest. Um, I really like to say, do not overpromise, always underpromise and overdeliver. You know, then everyone, you know, overpromising and not being able to deliver on those promises just creates disappointment. But if you can underpromise and over deliver, you can consistently have a good reputation with your clients. So mm. that's really important for me as well. The other side of that, I guess, would be saying no to a project right off, right off the get-go if it's a larger project. And we just like to be honest. I think that's that would be my biggest um, my my biggest way to kind of say that um, you know there's a reason why we can't do it. You know maybe it's time constraints or resource restraints. Um, and you know saying you know we'd love to do that project, but we're not going to be able to complete it for 12 months or eight months or whatever that is. Uh, often they'd rather know that than having us commit to it and not being able to deliver. Really good points, especially um, that last little bit you mentioned, because it kind of helps us understand, you know, how um, we can kind of navigate through these sorts of difficult conversations, I guess, and stuff like that. 
Um, so yeah, thank you for that response. Madison or Jeff, can I maybe you can answer this if if you can hear me, because <laughs> I'm like I'm on the sidelines. But you 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 operate in many different countries. Do you have a language issues? Do you have coders in different countries? I mean, I I think of you know Russia and Kazakhstan, the Russian language. So yeah. So we yes we we operate globally. Um, I think the largest time the the largest challenge there is uh, time. Difference. Um, our developers are mostly we. I mean, we do outsource a little bit, and we work with different teams. Um, but the developers, you know, once an idea gets brought to the developers, they all have their own. Each team has their own technique about working with people in different time zones in different areas. And English does seem to be the common language. Um, working with our clients and gathering feedback and building those relationships. The hardest part is definitely yes, language, but then also time. So we we have a very interesting and unique space. We we need technical technical support or sim specialists that know uh, the tech side. They know our simulations. Um, it's quite difficult to find actually, but we've managed to uh, kind of get through that problem by hiring people in specific regions. Um, we have. Our CTO is in Denmark, so that's that's been really beneficial. Uh, we have a SIM specialist who's also in Denmark, but that speaks Arabic, uh, and he's excellent. He works with all of our clients in the Middle East. Um, we had a SIM specialist in Australia. He actually just recently relocated to Canada, uh, but it was great. Him and I would, you know, kind of cross paths at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. as we, you know, started or ended our days. Um, So just right people, and then you know because of, of COVID and the situation that everyone is in, working virtually is is second nature now. So you know having those weekly touch points, touching base with our our sim specialists in different areas, uh, making sure they feel fully comfortable, but also trusting them to go out and and not need your assistance. Uh, we have a guy in Latin America as well who is just exceptional. Yeah, because you've you've touched on some um, oil, you know. He speaks Spanish. He speaks English. Yeah, no, I'm just saying like you've touched on like the Spanish. You've got Russian, the, the Dan, you know, the, uh, the Danish oil and gas. I mean, there's you've touched on a lot of oil and gas spots. They're they're all over, and languages and and remote locations. So yeah, that's helpful. That's that's a pretty yeah. good. I like that answer. I like that uh, yeah. approach. All right, Curtis. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> mine's the worst connection. So I'm the, I'm I'm no. on the sidelines. I can, I can barely in this thing, and I'm just hope if I can inject. So, so Curtis, go ahead. Throw a question uh, yeah. at Jeff. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. So I, I guess this is for both of you. Is that okay as well? Yeah. Um, so it, it's great to hear you guys' stories about your past, which is, by the way, uh, incredible. Um, you've gone through a lot of different stages and endured multiple experiences and jobs, and all of that has gotten you to where you are today. Um, and this next question that I'm about to ask, I know you might hear it a lot. It's probably a, a very general question, but how important is it not only for you to be passionate about your job, but also for you to feel challenged at work? Uh, for me, massively important. Like if, if you don't feel challenged, you aren't really progressing, but that's, 
different people will be, some people would like just sort of falling into a routine, right? That, that'd be comfortable for some people. And big reason why I left uh, uh, the dispatching yeah. was because I wasn't challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's just going to be individual, very individual for each person. Like it's yeah. important for me. Am I not? I'm this crowd. I'm assuming going to be important for pretty much all of us. But outside this crowd, it could be anything, right? Some people might never want to be challenged. Uh, yeah. In which case, you probably aren't going to land a good programming job. But there are people that be anywhere along the gradient. Yeah. yeah, I guess for me, I I am also quite competitive, and I love challenge. Challenges. So for me personally, I, I need a challenge to be passionate about something. And, you know, being in an industry like software engineering or technology, you know, things change every single day. We're constantly growing. We're getting new projects. We're pushing the limits, pushing the boundaries of what we can do. So as long as you're willing to kind of jump in with both feet, those challenges are always there. And and for me, when, you know, you're teaching yourself things, you're, you know, you want to be the best at what you can do. You want as much knowledge as you can to make yourself, you know, the best you can at your role. Um, that passion just comes very naturally. And you, you should be um, like, uh, you like to be competitive. Does that help in any way to get you like higher in the ranks, being more competitive compared to someone who's maybe just more relaxed? I think the research bears that out. Like the psychological yeah. research pretty conclusively. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, I have met a lot, you know, they, they are really happy with what they're doing. They're comfortable. <laughs> they like their job. They like to work at 9am. They know they leave at five. There's no commitments outside of that. And it makes them yeah. very happy. And perhaps they're sort of passionate with the things that they do outside of work but you know that that is the life that they want to live but they're yeah. still extremely good at their jobs um just two different types of people I think I I you know I always want more I always want to be better um as well we actually have quite a few competitive people in this company. well I have a question for you with uh with that Maddie as you say those people are very competent at their jobs but for me uh, I'd almost think that if you aren't competitive competitive you can't get hyper hyper um hyper competent but it's also possible to static they change you get married you have kids um would you say that those people that you say are sort of satisfied but are uh satisfied with their job not very competitive but very competent would you say that at one point that wouldn't be true that they would have been very competitive like in an earlier stage in their life that helped and that helped to get them where they are? I think it depends on the person. Um, and, you know, for me, I see, I see a lot of people in the software engineering space, but also in the business space. So, you know, there are a lot of important jobs that are perhaps a bit redundant in, in the fact that, you know, um, you're, you're putting in data until something is automated eventually or, 
are, you know, you're doing a repetitive mm. task over and over um, and you are good at it and you, you know, you, you are passionate about small wins, like completing a spreadsheet or completing a project right. and where, you know, people are great at their jobs um, and they don't need that competition. Um, right. If the job doesn't, isn't yeah. necessarily, you know, that competitive in the first place. Exactly. Uh, or or there's this the skill ceiling or the skill floor. Either the skill floor is low or the skill ceiling is low. Um I I think I can like jump in. So like as kind of like a kind of concluding question. Um so this is for both Jeff and Madison. So as you know, we're software engineers kind of, I guess, trying to head into the industry. You know, we're in our third year, especially for internships and all that. So do you have any kind of advice for us as to like how we can maybe like we can prepare ourselves as best as we can to enter the workforce? Any kind of advice or any tips or anything like that? So my first piece of advice would be, you know, you use the context that you have even us, you know, we, I've worked with a lot of tech companies. You guys are incredibly smart. I would love to help. Like if you, you know, send us your, your resumes and what you're looking for. We always hear people looking for interns or are available positions. Um, and then just mentality, every, you know, hackathon or every networking event, you know, people always say, oh, reach out to me, follow up with me, but actually do because you'll build quite a large repertoire people that you can reach out to and from what i've seen in the industry everyone really does want to help sure. um yeah. you know and we have are, you guys are in edmonton calgary oh calgary calgary yeah perfect beautiful yeah well we're in, we're in calgary but we have just actually in edmonton we have a, de a dev office in edmonton as well um but you know we we're we're great contacts uh you're you're professors are great contacts. I know the schools always have great events where companies come and kind of present what they're doing. Um, so just really don't don't be shy about reaching out to people that you've met would be my my top piece of advice. Absolutely. For sure, be sure to, I guess, implement that and work our best to develop those skills. Yeah, I, I feel like we've touched on this a bit before. Um, I mean, make sure that you're prepared for the coding interviews and all that stuff, but also just think about, um, you know, I'm coming out of college, a whole bunch of other people are coming out of college and my resume is going to be mixed in with their resume. Uh, how do I stand out? How do I get, how do I get noticed versus this person? Uh, And, and, you know, again, that's what we were saying before, uh, apply for jobs and see where the failure point is. If the failure point is you aren't even getting called back or acknowledged, then you're, you need to stand out more in your resume. Yeah, for sure. That sounds great as well. Um, I just, I had one last thing, sorry, uh, real quick. So for in the future, just because we're on that topic like of getting you know future jobs and stuff like that um what do you guys think is the future of software like i know that you know everyone jokes about like robots taking over the world and stuff like that 
but with the AI advancing as fast as it is, you know, do you think uh, AI is the like the biggest part of software that's going to be in the future, or do you think it's biomedical applications, or um, what industry do you think is going to be the most um, popular and the most impactful in the future? Um, that's a good question, but I I don't think many people would sort of bet against AI. That certainly seems like it's being more and more sought after. The only thing that I would say is, yeah, it seems pretty obvious that AI is going is sort of like coming up and up, but also just because you don't, just because that's the high sort of growth area doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you want to focus on. Obviously, you guys are third year and you're already doing AI. So this is not necessarily advice for you. But if you look at like uh, software jobs, um, it's kind of self-regulating in that. Okay, uh, looking at Python. Uh, and so everybody's, so there's more Python jobs. Now there's more Python programmers uh, to fill those jobs. And I wouldn't necessarily look if you're looking to like say, okay, I want to be in this specific sort of field or sort of subgenre. Uh, don't necessarily just look at what's popular. Look at what is supply versus demand, and also pay scale, right? So, like uh, old, old, old uh, uh, languages like Pascal, you might not have very many jobs, but you also don't have applicants are highly sought after, right? Because like um, you want somebody to maintain your 50-year-old mainframe code, uh, they can pretty much name their price, right? Uh, but again, it's sort of like specific to each each and every language, each and every discipline, each and every job. Uh, yeah, I'd just say, like, you know, approach it analytically and be your own devil's advocate, like metacognate on stuff. And don't just be like, okay, I've learned X and X is popular, therefore X is the way to go. Just, you know. That's yeah. good advice. For, for me, and it's funny, I actually got asked this question very recently. So I did put some thought into it and kind of what areas I thought were gonna be, you know, very interesting in the future. Um, so I'll kind of just go through them and, you know, take it with a grain of salt really. Um, Cloud-based services, for yep. sure. Uh, artificial, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Mm -hmm. um, new reality with VR and AR. I definitely think there will be some that are introduced. Um, continuous integration and continuous deployment. I think those are really, really interesting. Uh, I think there is a high potential of blockchain technology and that that will continue as well. And then I think a really interesting area also will be cybersecurity because that will become more and more progress. Mm And then sort of outside of that, I think the key would be to look for something that is industry agnostic. So for example, um, at Endeavor, um, we build simulations for training. Really the magic of what we do is a computational model. 
and how we analyze these thousands of data points. So, you know, that really is an industry agnostic concept. Yeah. You know, we, we talk about oil and gas, um, but, you know, it could be, you know, we could talk about wastewater, we could talk about healthcare. Um, you can use the way we model these scenarios in so many different industries. So looking at companies that are, that are doing that, I think um, will, those companies will be around for a long time. Okay, that's for sure. That, uh, yeah, those were kind of along the lines of what I was thinking. I was just curious to see what you guys thought about it. And uh, yeah, thank you for providing those answers. Curtis, throw one last question if you've got it, because my <laughs> just not going to interject here. I cannot. Anything I say will be used against me. <laughs> it's fine. We can we can moderate for you, Curtis. Any last questions? Um, do we have time for one? I think so. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I yeah, I guess I can ask you a follow up question than the one before. Um. Just a quick one. Uh, since the industry is like changing, how do you guys keep up with new tools and technologies that are being released or like new skills that you need to keep up with? So for me, it's uh, we always want to continue to develop new products and push the boundaries of what is currently possible. So, you know, building simulations that live on hardware and having these hardware simulators and then pushing that to have cloud simulation and doing training virtually and doing training online. And then, okay, now we have these uh, 3D simulations and they're online, but how can we make that immersive? Let's make an immersive simulator that is accessible online globally. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, from there, what, how do we improve on that? How do we continue to be better? I think having a team that really is competitive, we just, we're going to continue to push the boundaries of this industry. We're going to continue to, you know, work on what we have and make it even better. Um, so I, I guess for me, that's kind of, that, that's where I see us going. And that's how I, I think yeah. we'll continue to push boundaries. Um, we have a really great tech team as well. They're very knowledgeable. Um, and, you know, they, they're consistently pushing the boundaries as well, upgrading Unity, learning, looking for new technologies. Like you know, Jeff mentioned, a lot of the projects he worked on when he first started at Endeavor, you know, taking what we had and making it better. Um, we're always, we're always trying to improve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. A few different ways I could parse that. Um, it's a very general question. Uh, in terms of working with. With new technologies, so, so I guess like how 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 to say this? Um, I would probably say like depending on what you're doing, that all those new technologies may or may not be applicable to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but in term, it's always worthwhile to stay up to date and what you're doing, staying up to date and sort of end upcoming stuff, I'd say really depends on how much time commitment you can put yeah. to it, right? Like um, I can watch like, uh, I'm not a Python 
uh, or I can watch like a two hour Python uh, tutorial on like uh, on two times speed and be like, oh, okay, this is how it works. Um, so my roommate is uh, learning Python for a course. So I did just that. And afterwards I'm like, okay, uh, I have a little bit of knowledge about like the syntax and stuff, but up until the point where I actually started like coding it and helping him uh, write stuff out in Python, uh, you know, it doesn't really stick necessarily. And my thing, and I think this is pretty much true for everybody is that theoretical learning is not enough. You need the practical side, the theoretical stuff gets lost very quickly. And Matt talking about this earlier, she took like a 12 month, um, uh, JavaScript course, and uh, she's actually been using it um, since she's uh, uh, since she took it about a year ago, and she's actually been using it. But I asked her, "What do you think would happen if you hadn't been?" And she said, "You know, I'd probably forget everything." So I would say, in terms of learning new technologies, um, sort of think strategically, like it's time management and motivation management. Like, it, yes, can I watch some YouTube videos? Can I maintain this? Can I maintain this? And obviously if you can find some sort of a real project that you can apply it to, that's the best. But if not, you know, can I practice every once in a while just to keep it, keep up to date and keep it fresh. And if not, like uh, it might be best not to do it. Or yeah. just to say, moderate the amount of stuff that you're keeping up, motivation and the amount of practical hands-on that you can uh, uh, extract. Yeah. Um, it's probably more of a balancing act and it's gonna depend on sort of your individual inclination and ability, I guess. That's what I'd say. Yeah, yeah, that's a great response. I, I never really, thought about it like that like uh it's applicable to you like when what's applicable to you so thank you um i see that alan's asked you guys if you guys want to ask uh one of us like a question or something yeah i have a question for you guys i'm actually going to spin this back around on you um there are a lot of tech companies coming to calgary um over the last year it's been proven that we can all work remotely especially software engineers how can we attract, you know, bright students in interest, interesting industries to want to work for us at Endeavor? Um, yeah, so I can take a crack at it first, I guess. Um, so the one thing uh, for me specifically, and it might be, you know, different for Mahin and Curtis, um, but for me, uh, I guess the biggest thing that kind of draws me into a company is the ability to um, learn, essentially, because you know, in a classroom, we learn a bunch of things. We learn good software practices. We learn um, development techniques. We actually learn coding and things like that. But to be able to actually apply it to a real life project and have a meaningful input, what I look for um, when I'm applying to companies. Um, and that's something that I really value because it gives me a chance to actually see how the skills that I'm developing in my school and in my formal education could actually be used to impact real life applications and uh, people in the real world. And I think that's one of the biggest selling points, I guess, for me in, ter in terms of a company is how much, uh, how hands-on I, how hands -on I could get in uh, those projects. 
I completely agree with um, Div and in that uh, I feel like as an intern, the most important aspect of it is kind of to learn and grow as much as you can. Um, so I think in a company, the most the most thing I would want out of an internship is like, like I guess an opportunity to grow my my software skills and all that. So I yeah for sure for me it's just to kind of grow as much as I can and to learn as much as I can and to work with some great and experienced software developers and engineers and. So I'm the better software engineer than I was when I started at the at the role. So it's kind of how I see it and kind of what's important to me. Uh, that's yeah, that's super interesting, and it's definitely something I'm gonna make note of. We do a good enough job about talking about our own team, especially in interviews, showcasing uh, the caliber of the architects and developers and engineers that we have on the team. So yeah, that's that's actually great advice for us. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I just think uh, it's important to just um, express the company as best as you can. So that like if people have passion for what you're doing, for the projects that you're doing, for the way that you like um, uh, represent yourself and automatically align with you. And then also making a dip said like it's it's yeah, it's so important to learn things, but also like the the environment that you're gonna be in. Is it like uh, a helpful environment? Are the people um, who are in charge of you or like helping you out? Are they going to assist you and help you get better? And then can that experience be used to, for your future experiences? Awesome. Yeah, that's it's really great to know. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to think of a, some sort of really profound question when you guys were answering, but I don't think I was quite able to come up with one. Uh, couple okay so here's something um when you graduate um and you're looking for jobs why are you looking for a job why uh because um as a as a as a software developer you know you can you can also chart your own path you can make your own things you can Make your own programs, games. You can try to uh, have a bunch of you group up that you think are very competent people, try and form a startup. There's a lot of different ways that you can go about it. So why, hey, individually, are you guys looking for, looking to join a company and not looking to do your own thing? Um, yeah, so I can go first again. So, uh, so my ultimate, um... I don't know about in life, but uh, in terms of software would be that this is kind of why I'm doing, you know, business and engineering combined together is because I eventually want to create something of my own, um, something that, you know, I started from the ground up and kind of makes an impact and uh, relies on foundational knowledge of software. Um, and so that's my future goal. And I believe that uh, working in a company and kind of, um going through uh, the process is going to help me develop those skills that I'm going to use later on. And so it's just, uh, I believe it's going to be really, really beneficial working with various different people, professionals, people with different backgrounds, and maybe even do different roles, uh, not just, you know, software developer, but maybe uh, branch out and try new things because that those experiences collectively will eventually allow me to pursue that uh, final end goal that I have. Um, and I think that's why for me, 
at least is why I want to uh, start with, you know, some sort of job or some position um, and progress and work and do something that I'm passionate about and eventually go towards that end goal. That's a good answer. Sure. Thank you. Um, I can go next. And uh, once again, I also agree with Div in that I feel like working in a company that already exists, of course, um, it can like provide you some really good experience in that you're able to kind of grow and like work with these senior developers who just know so you do. I mean, at this stage of life, right? So I feel like they can give you that kind of that crucial experience that's needed and it can help you grow a lot as an individual and as a programmer. And on top of that, I feel like for me, at least, it's really kind of Kind of your work on like an existing like piece of code and all that so like say any legacy code that a company has is really like it's really like, cool to me to see how i kind of how i can add on to it and how i can make it better and add my touch to it and so that's also really kind of a key factor for me in choosing to work at a company oh so yeah. that's kind of my yeah. yeah you think legacy code is cool now you probably won't <laughs> uh, uh curtis um, yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I would just say like, I think it just provides in a way like a bit of security. And then also you get to, to work with people in a company um, under people. Um, you get to get that experience. And then like how you guys said, you have different stages, you went through different jobs. If maybe that's not what you want to do, you can pursue something afterwards, but you have that experience and you have that knowledge now. Okay, great answer. And uh, looks like uh, Alan, I think, might be away. He just asked me to close the on his behalf. So, you know what, uh, Curtis, Maheen, Div, great to talk to you. You guys sound like impressive people. I'm sure you'll do great. I uh, sound wow. like you really want it. And Please yeah, stay in touch. Please stay in touch. I'm I'm honestly very excited and curious to see what you guys do in the future. If I had a better yeah, connection, thank you so much. Guys, if my connection was better, I would just, you guys, this is an amazing dialogue. Jeff, first of all, you're not, <laughs> you guys, Jeff is, a, Jeff is a natural moderator. You guys, girls, the whole crew, wonderful. Thank you. Brought it home, Jeff. Jeff, you brought it home well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. Take care, everybody. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank right, you so thank much, you everyone. Nice to meet you. Have a great day. Bye. Bye, everyone.